Please stand with me if you're able and open to Joshua chapter 9. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be the entire chapter of Joshua 9. Joshua 9 beginning in verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, and on all the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys, and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys, and wineskins worn out, and torn and mended, and worn-out and patched sandals on their feet, and worn-out clothes on themselves, and all the bread of their provisions was dry and had become crumbled. They went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? They said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country, because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This our bread was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day we left to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and has become crumbled. These wineskins which were filled were new, and behold, they are torn. And these our clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. It came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and that they were living within their land. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Kephira and Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. The sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, so that wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. The leaders said to them, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you, when you are living within our land? Now therefore you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told your servants, and the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you, therefore we fear greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel, and they did not kill them. 
But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray before we hear from God's word this morning. Lord, we come before you again as a needy people. And we ask that you would grant us ability to understand, arrest our attention. We ask that you would grant me the ability to communicate your truth by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, salvation of the lost. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we continue our study in the book of Joshua, by way of review, bring us up to speed, we've been tracing the story of God's redemption of his people as it unfolds in biblical history, where after 400 years under Egyptian bondage, God miraculously delivers his people Israel supernaturally passing through the Red Sea where the pursuing armies of Pharaoh were crushed. They enter covenant with Yahweh at Mount Sinai. They're given the law. They come to the border of the promised land and stall. Fearing man rather than trusting God. And therefore, they are consigned to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. All along the way, God provides manna from heaven, water from a rock, Their shoes do not wear out. And that entire generation, all but two, they die in the wilderness. For this next generation of Israelites, they faithfully cross the Jordan River, again by the miraculous hand of God. They enter into the promised land, and they erect a monument there, a monument of stones to commemorate their deliverance. We saw that in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, the the focus was on the renewal of God's covenant with his people. The men of Israel were all circumcised there. Their parents, their forefathers, Neglected to circumcise. That's the sign of the covenant. They were not circumcised during the wilderness wandering time. So here as they enter the promised land, they renew the covenant, they're circumcised, and then all the people celebrate the first Passover meal in the promised land. And there's no record of them celebrating the Passover for the last 40 years. In chapter 6, we saw that glorious victory of Jericho, where the walls fell down flat. In chapter 7 came the devastating defeat at Ai due to 
sin within the camp of Israel. And then in chapter 8, we witness the victory at Ai. And then that victory was followed by a worship service of all of Israel in Shechem between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Shechem, of course, was where Abraham first received the promise of God of the promised land some 600 years before they enter in. So there they rejoiced, there they renewed their covenant responsibilities before Almighty God, sacrificing a burnt offering, that's where the entire offering that would be consumed by the fire, and then a peace offering, peace offering, uh, the entire thing wasn't consumed, but you could partake of that food as you provide the sacrifice, and of course, that took place on Mount Ebal, which was the Mount of Cursing, foreshadowing where the true offering would be given many years later and true peace would be provided where Jesus would be crucified on that mount of cursing called Golgotha. In chapter 8 and verse 32, we read that Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. That no doubt is a reference to the Decalogue. Ten Commandments, which says essentially to the surrounding nations within Canaan, there right in the middle of the land, here it is, this is the very reflection of the character of Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth. Staking claim, that is God's claim on this land. This land is God's land. And these Canaanites are about ready to expire under the just hand of God because the iniquities of the Amorites is complete. Remember what God said to Abraham. Your descendants will not inherit the land until the iniquities of the Amorites are complete. And they're complete. In other words, they had 400 years, 400 years to repent before the one true God. But their iniquity, their evil, their wickedness only increased. Here, God stakes claim to the land, and Israel rejoices. Are you with me? That brings us to chapter 9. Then, when they, notice, all the kings who were beyond the Jordan heard of it. What's the it? Well, we studied last time, the it must be the erection of this monument and the writing of the law in the land that stakes a claim that this is God's land for God's people, period. When they heard of it, they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. That is a people united against God's people in rebellion against God's word. Now, we know from Rahab's testimony, you remember back in chapter 2, Rahab the prostitute, that God saved. Her testimony said this, the whole land, all the Canaanites know what happened 40 years ago. 
when God led your people out of Egypt. They know of it. We're well aware of it. We're also aware of what you did to, the, to those kings on the other side of the Jordan. And all the people over here quake with fear, she told them. Because we know that your God is with you and he will destroy us. He is the God of heaven above and earth beneath. They know the one true God and yet here they are uniting together against him. Joining together, that, that's a vain gesture to say the least. Against the living God showing us the blindness of those who dare fight against God. And again, this is reminiscent of Psalm chapter 2, which reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? What an empty attempt. What a foolish attempt. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Friends, that is what our society is doing. That's what our president is doing. That is what the majority of the government is doing. That is what the media is doing. This very moment, shaking their fist at God, mocking and banning the scriptures. Let me tell you something. Although no one will ever entirely succeed in quieting spokesman for God or his scriptures. Nevertheless, the world by its nature unites in vain against him. Even enemies. Now, the, these kings of this land, they oftentimes were rattling their swords towards one another. And yet here they are uniting against God's people, which is to unite against God. A vain attempt. During the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, Sadducees, Pharisees, what were they? Enemies who united against the embodiment of truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. To this day, even Muslims will join together with atheists against those who declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. Haters of truth hear kings out of their common love for sin and their common rejection of the one true God unite verses one and two. Now, as we studied last time, Israel's solemn commitment to the word of God in Shechem and that glorious climax at the end of chapter eight comes right before the folly of chapter 9. That is Joshua and Israel's being deceived by the Gibeonites. Deceived. The title of the message is Deception and Dedication. You'll see why as this account unfolds. And this is a reminder that as Christians... You can have a profound experience of the Lord. You can make a, a, a sincere commitment to the Lord and afterwards commit terrible foolishness. 
is Deuteronomy 11, verse 11 states that the promised land is a land filled with hills and valleys. So too is the Christian life. Witness from the congregation this morning. <laughs> of course it is. Now, the first thing that we're shown here in this account is the discernment that is needed as believers so as not to believe the enemy. So as not to believe the enemy. Now, these men here in verse 3, they approach Joshua. They're very sly, very slick. They come with a well-planned, a well-planned plot that is of deception. They know that if they do not succeed with this lie, that they and all of their people will be utterly destroyed. Notice verse 3. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that jo what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they acted craftily. Now, Gibeon was a city located just six miles northwest of Jerusalem. And from where they are right here in this account, it's only about 25 miles away. Now, we read in chapter 10 and verse 2, notice that Gibeon was a great city and all its men were warriors. They're the enemy. Gideon was the city of the Hivites. We see them mentioned there in verse 1 and again in verse 7. But, but notice how deceptive their, their so-called evidence is. In verses 4 and 5, acting craftily, we read, they set out as envoys. They, they prepared all of these things beforehand, before leaving. They gathered together tattered sacks, old wineskins, worn-out sandals, worn-out clothes, and they even brought dried-out food, food that was crumbling. Yet, notice that they do not call attention to those things until later. This would be a dead giveaway if they rolled into town and said, hey, look, look at our worn-out sandals and worn-out wineskins. We've been traveling from afar for a long time. We're from a faraway land. No, that doesn't come up until verse 12. So that would be a giveaway, but notice verse 6. We've come from a faraway country. Now, therefore, make covenant with us. Verse 9. Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. We've heard about him. So lying about their homeland and, and wearing tattered clothing, newsflash, they were not from a faraway land. <laughs> Liars. Deception on display. Now notice that their apparent zip code is critical to their ploy. So they stress that, again, they've come from a very faraway land, verses 6 through 9. So question, why is that so crucial? Quite simply, because the Lord Almighty 
made clear to Israel that they were allowed to make peace with lands that were far away from the, their inheritance in Canaan. They were called to eradicate every human being within Canaan, but to those who are far off, those who live on the borders of Canaan, they could make peace with. Look at it, Deuteronomy chapter 20. Beginning in verse 10. When you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword. Only the women and the children and the animals and all that is in the city, all its spoil you shall take as booty for yourself, and you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Verse 15, thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these Peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Parasite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite as the Lord your God has commanded you so that they may not teach you. Why destroy them? Why kill them all? So that they do not teach you to do all according to their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, which are no gods so that you would sin against the Lord your God, the one true and only God. So it's interesting that these Gibeonites knew what the law of God said regarding this policy. This is brilliant. <laughs> that a treaty could be made if they were from a long way off. So they gathered worn out stuff to say, look, look how far we've traveled. You see these shoes? You see this? You see these wineskins? Look at our food. It's all crumbled. We've been on the road a long time. So knowing this, they decide to use it for their own protection. So who are these Gibeonites? Who are these people? Look at Genesis 9. Where do they come from? Verse 18, Genesis 9. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, 
saw the naked of his father and told his two brothers outside. So whether he wanted to mock his father, you know, this righteous one, and, and kind of poke fun at it, he presented the situation to the, the other two brothers. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. That is the shame of his nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine... He knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, Canaan's descendants, the son of Ham, Noah prophesies there that it would be servants to the others. So Joshua and, and the nation of Israel, they're the offspring of Shem. The Canaanites are the son of Ham, who uncovered, who mocked his father's nakedness. So the prophecy tells us that the Canaanites will be servants of Shem's offspring, Israel. Are you with me? Okay, look at chapter 10, Genesis, verse 15. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite. Who are the Gibeonites? Sons of Canaan, the sons of Ham. Back to Joshua, verse 7. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? Why? How? Because God told us to wipe you all out. But they said to Joshua, We're your servants. Then Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? See, Joshua was no buffoon. You see this? He's no dummy. He knew to ask the right questions because he was alert to the possibility of deception. Verse 9. They said to him, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God, trying to butter him up. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the, to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. They know about these events that took place 40 years ago. Out of Egypt, they're warming up to Joshua. They're students of history, notice. They're also students of the mighty words and mighty works of the one true God. You know something? These people know more about the words and works of God than most of our neighbors do. Unbelieving neighbors. We, we live in a day where, where the Bible and theology is at your fingertips. And I don't know that there's a time of greater biblical illiteracy, at least in this nation, that there has ever been. 
Even some Christians that I talk to are like so biblically illiterate. You got to study the word, amen. That's why we do this, amen. That's why we do biblical exposition. If you're a visitor and you've never sat through biblical exposition, you're going, my goodness, all the details? Yes, all the details. This is the word of God. Amen. No three points in a poem for you. Okay? Verse 11, we are your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. They want a covenant of peace. Peace. They know they're doomed. If they're found out, they're done. Notice also, they're brilliant in that they remain silent with regard to God destroying Jericho and Ai. They know about it, we've already read it, but they don't mention it. Why don't they mention it? Because knowing about those victories would give them away because they're supposed to come from a faraway land and news, they didn't have the internet. Took a while for news to travel, right? So if they come from a faraway land, they would not know about Jericho and Ai. Verse 13, they make their convincing case. These wineskins which we filled were new, and behold, they're torn. These are clothes and our sandals are, are worn out because of the very long journey. Sounds like my five-year-old grandson when he's making excuses. No, but look. Verse 15, Joshua made peace with them, made a covenant with them, and let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. It came about at the end of three days after they had made covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors living within their land. Now, we're not told how Israel learned that the Gibeonites lived not far away. They were Canaanites through and through. We're not told how, but nevertheless, the fact that they were impaled Joshua and Israel on the horns of a dilemma. Right? First, if they kept covenant with the Gibeonites... They, they would violate the direct commandment of Almighty God not to make treaty with anyone within the land of Canaan. Nevertheless, also, rather, if they broke covenant, they would betray an oath solemnly sworn in the name of Almighty God. They made an oath in his name. Verse 17. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Chephirah, Biroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. It was like a confederation of, of four towns in that region, apparently. Verse 18, the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. That's so like human nature right there. Grumbling against your leaders. Don't do that, amen? I'm glad you don't. They grumbled. 
See, the people wanted to attack and kill these deceivers. But they were prevented by the sanctity of Israel's oath, verses 19 to 21. And then in verse 22, then Joshua called for them and spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying we are, from, we are very far from you when you are living within our land? Now therefore you are cursed and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore, we feared greatly for our lives because of you that we have done this thing. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. So part of that pact made with Joshua was that they agreed, the Gibeonites agreed to be servants of Israel. Verse 21, so they became hewers of wood, cutters of wood, cutters and carriers of wood, and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Now, once the leaders explained the dilemma, the sons of Israel, verse 26, did not kill them. The Gibeonites were cursed and consigned to be slaves as prophesied by Noah in Genesis 9. Wow. Wow. Isn't the Bible great? Oh, yeah, mere men wrote the Bible. <laughs> Fool. Now, I want to pause midstream. We're going to get back to the account. See the glories of the gospel in this account. Okay, but I want to pause for some um, applicable points since we read in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 that all of the Old Testament was written for what? Our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10, written for our instruction. So we must ask, what did Israel do wrong here? First lesson comes by way of those tragic words that I skipped over, verse 14. The men of Israel did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made covenant with them, verse 15. They, they should have consulted the Lord, and presumably the deceit would have been unmasked. Prayer. For us, as believers, this, this is a flashing yellow caution light, and that is that they committed the error of walking by sight. Walking according to circumstantial evidence. Supposed evidence. <laughs> so while Joshua and the leaders, they were involved in the decision, the one not involved was God. 
Trusting in your own wisdom is always foolish. I've had to learn this lesson, man. Oh. 20 years ago, I was duped by someone. $20,000 worth. My intention was to start a ministry, a halfway house for, for guys coming out of prison because I was in prison ministry for 10 years. So I wanted to start a halfway house for these cats coming out of prison. It's a long story, long story, boring. I give the guy $20,000 and I was rook, taken, never to receive it back. And in retrospect, the individual that I was working with, there were certain red flags that popped up. And those red flags were a lack of the fruit of the Spirit. Duped. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Lean not on your own understanding. In fact, in Numbers 27, Joshua was clearly commanded by Moses himself to consult the Lord when decisions had to be made. Questions such as, should we enter into covenant with these people or not? Friends, Joshua is an 80-year-old, mature believer, a giant in the faith. His sanctification far exceeds ours, friends. And this brother was duped. And this brother failed to seek the counsel of the Lord. A great lapse in discernment right here with this giant. He failed in the same way back in chapter 7. Did you notice that he never sought the counsel of the Lord before taking, uh, going up against Ai? Don't you think God would have revealed that there's sin in the camp if he had just asked? So do I. <laughs> just a man. He's a great man, but he's merely a man. So the impulsive decision, number one, neglected God's word, and number two, neglected prayer to God. So we, we always need to be careful as believers when we begin to think, you know, there's no, there's no need to really consult the Lord on this one. I've got this one. This one's obvious. Amen? I have this one under control. Everything lines up. It all looks good. So verse 14 is a repudiation of, of worldly wisdom and prayerlessness which is a dangerous pattern for us to fall into. So the lesson here is that we need to regularly and, and humbly ask for God's wisdom and guidance. It's James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. Just ask. So as Christians, while we are forgiven... While we are justified, declared free from all blame, yet we remain sinners. Sinners saved by grace who often make the very same mistake. Let us not. Amen? And it's usually because we don't take advantage of the truth that we know, or at least the truth that is available to us by way of the word and counsel from one another that will direct us back to the word. I mean, how many times has it happened that a young man or young woman 
do not do their due diligence. So usually, usually, I'm going to have to point out women here. Usually women wanting to get married, she convinces herself, as Israel did here, that she could count on this guy to be a leading godly partner. There were some red flags. There were some red flags. Others, they expressed doubts about this individual. They raised some questions about this guy. And just how rooted in the truth is this dude? There were doubts. Joshua had some initial doubts. Amen? But this girl, this gal, she didn't want to hear any negative or cautious words about this guy that she loves. I love him. I want to marry him. He provided all the assurances. And you know what he came with? A tattered Bible. Too bad it wasn't his. His grandpa, who was a believer, passed it down to him, but he never opens the thing. But look, it's tattered. I'm in it all the time. So she marries the guy, vows are taken, and not much later, she realizes she's been duped. He wasn't the serious Christian she had assured herself that he was. So she becomes angry over the deceit, perhaps even angry at God. But she has no one else to blame but herself, sadly. Sadly. So here, without searching out counsel of the Lord, Israel fell into this trap of trusting in their own judgment and wisdom. Something very lifelike about this narrative, amen? <laughs> That's the first lesson. Second lesson, here in Joshua 9, we see a model of integrity. A model of integrity. Where, where Joshua and the leaders of Israel understand just how significant vows, promises, and covenant making is before the eyes of the Lord. They blew it. And although they blew it, they were bound to keep covenant no matter the cost. That's the second lesson. They were deceived because they did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Yet, when, when Joshua and his men uncover the scam, they did not break their promise to the Gibeonites. They kept their vow. Right? They had Deuteronomy 23, 21 in their mind. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for that would be sin for you, says the Lord. So as believers, when we make promises and vows, we're to be bound by our word. Even if it is unfavorable for us. Psalm 15 and verse 4, we see one of the marks of a godly man where we read, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. He swears to his own hurt. You know, although circumstances may change, although the market turns against him, he does not go back on his word. In our day, it's all too common 
that we make promises with our fingers crossed. I read about it every day. I read the newspaper like on my phone. Every day, some athlete, world-class athlete, which makes, who makes hundreds of millions of dollars, holds out wanting to renegotiate his contract. An employee signs a contract, terms of a contract with their employer, and three months later, they, they want to change those terms. Our church covenant right back there, our church covenant, Pacific Hope Church Covenant Agreement, people walk away from it as though words have no meaning. Marriage covenant, as words have no meaning. I promise for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And they walk away. Scripture instructs us to be very careful about making vows, promises, and entering into pacts. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better never to vow than to vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that, ah, oh, it was a mistake. If I don't take my vow seriously, and you don't take yours seriously, guess what? God does take it seriously. That's the second lesson. So even in our folly, even in our wrong and less than discerning decisions, and I've had far too many that I'd like to think about right now, God is still at work. God remains faithful. His dedication is unwavering. He does not speak out of both sides of his mouth. Amen? So that our failures and our sins do not have the last word. His grace and mercy has the last word. Amen? Thank God for that. God said to Joshua back in chapter 1 and verse 5, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Okay, now I want you to notice the glorious providence of God in the rest of this account. We'll see the gospel on display, okay? Note God's providence, verse 27. But Joshua made them that day, the Gibeonites, hewers of wood, drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose, and one of the places he would choose would be Shiloh, where they would erect the tabernacle where these Gibeonites would then do the, they would provide the janitorial work in the tabernacle and then later the temple of the living God. Right there. And you know something else? The Gibeonites never created problems for Israel after this point. Ever. When the land was divided... Gibeon was one of the cities given to Aaron and the priests. However, 400 years later, King Saul, the first king of Israel, tried to annihilate 
the Gibeonites. And as a result, the Lord punished Israel with a famine. After Saul, once David was seated on the throne. Look at it. 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the, in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David saw the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, it is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Right? So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. When? Under Joshua. Even though it was centuries later. But Saul sought to kill them. Later, when David erected the tabernacle, 1 Chronicles 16, guess where he did it? Gibeon. When his son Solomon ascended the throne after David, guess where he did it? Gibeon. When Israel was taken into Babylonian captivity, guess who went with them? The Gibeonites. Seventy years later when they returned, guess who came back with them? The Gibeonites. You see that in Nehemiah 3 and 7. So while sin always pays a wage, and the Gibeonites certainly have sinned, Nevertheless, according to God's glorious providence, eventually the Gibeonites were called the Nethinim. The Nethinim, which means given ones. Given ones for temple service under the priests of Israel. Beautiful. And biblical history shows us that they labored as servants in the temple. First Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. These deceivers. Now, although the text doesn't explicitly say this, we might infer here from Joshua 9 that, that the Gibeonites gain a great advantage that is a spiritual advantage through this scenario, through this deceit, which only magnifies once again the mercies of Almighty God. After all, what does Psalm 84.10 tell us? I would rather be a doorkeeper, a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness, as in the wickedness of the Amorites, say. Amen? Doorkeepers, janitors in the temple of the living God. Consider what these Gibeonites, the Nethinim, would have witnessed day after day as they chopped wood for the burnt offerings and brought up water for the basin, for the ritual cleaning and all of that. They would see the necessity for a sacrifice day after day after day. The necessity for a burnt offering. The necessity for a peace offering. And then on the day of atonement, there's two goats brought in. One is consumed. One is slaughtered, and then upon the head of the other, the priest would lay his hands as a symbol of all of Israel's sins for that year. Those sins pressed upon the head of the second goat that was then chased out in the wilderness, never to return again. And no doubt would have been devoured by a wild beast out there. 
the scapegoat, driven out. They would see sins being carried away. A sacrifice being burnt on the altar. Showing the Gibeonites the mercy of Yahweh. God's mercy. So being exposed to the truth day after day under these circumstances may, by God's grace, have birthed faith in many of them. Deception, dedication. When they plotted their scam, they knew they would be exchanging some of their freedoms for their very lives. They knew this. People do it all the time, especially during times of war. You count the cost. You always weigh the cost. What did Jesus remind us of? If your enemy's coming at you and you know you can't beat him, come to terms quickly. That's what they thought. That's what they did. Brilliant. Now, some people like the Gibeonites join the church under false pretense. And while we should work, that's why the leadership here, elders and deacons, we're always on the same page. We're locked together and very discerning when someone walks through these doors and has an agenda. We will sniff you out. We will. You'll get a chance to repent and you will be escorted out if you have an evil agenda. Amen? And those who want to join the church under false pretense, that is perhaps with a false profession of faith, though we want to do everything we can to prevent that from happening, it may come to be that as they sit under the sound preaching of the word, that they too, not unlike probably some of the Gibeonites, will come to saving faith as well. Therefore, the preacher, the church, must be given to preaching the whole counsel of God. The word is much more powerful than any deceiver sitting out amongst the people. Amen? So these pagan Canaanites were brought close by way of God's means of grace. The sacrificial system, the order of worship for Israel through their service in the tabernacle and then later the temple. Out chopping wood, hauling wood, and, and, and hauling and passing on buckets of water. Janitors to the house of Almighty God. Grace, God's means of grace, they were brought near. And guess what? Same is true for us. Their story is our story. Did you catch it earlier in the service, Ephesians 2? Look at it. Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near. By what? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. Alone. So just as God delivered these far-off Canaanite, who were not far-off Canaanites, they claimed to be far-off, but they were not, spared them. There was another one who was far-off. Her name was Rahab. 
brought near by the grace of God in Christ, God spares these Gibeonites his own hand to judgment, even though they deceived the leaders of Israel. He spares them. He deceived God's people. Joshua. And he's, they're spared. So here we see the grace of God in providing salvation for sinners. Glorious picture, amen? Beautiful. We also see that God's covenant mercies extend outside the boundaries of Israel right here. God, in other words, will save those who fear him and who call upon his name without exception. Who fear him and call upon his name. Even though they didn't have to lie and deceive. Call out for his mercy. You receive it. So Joshua, again, whose name means the Lord is salvation, is a foreshadowing and picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shares the same name. Jesus is the name Joshua. It's just the Greek version of Joshua. He is the Lord who is salvation. Jesus. He will do the same for anyone who calls upon his name. Anyone who calls out for a peace treaty between themselves and the ancient of days, there's only one provided that can provide that peace. And it's his mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between the ancient of days and man. And that is the God-man, Christ Jesus, the greater Joshua. So if the lesser Joshua, this one, spared those who came begging for a covenant of peace, how much more willing is the greater Joshua, the Lord Jesus Christ? How much more willing is he to receive and spare those coming and seeking peace with Almighty God? The one who bore the wrath to provide the peace. The greater Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he offers terms of eternal peace. Not temporal, land kind of peace, but eternal peace. And he extends the invitation, and it goes like this. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. So here, the lesser Joshua, way back here in Joshua 9, reflects the faithfulness of the greater Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ, who not only made, but kept every promise of the covenant to redeem us. We who are promise breakers. He made the promise and he kept the promise. Fulfilled in Christ. He'll turn no one away who comes in faith and repentance, including liars, deceivers, rebels, enemies, he turns enemies into friends. By repentant faith, enemies become the friends of God. He who is the God of all grace, flee to him if you're not in him this morning. Flee to the one who can provide peace with God. That is Jesus Christ. Repent, call on him by faith, which is a gift. Perhaps the Lord has birthed that faith in you this morning, and you too, guaranteed, shall be saved. through peace that comes by way of the cross. Amen? Lord, we do thank you again for your word.
We praise you for the name above all names, our Lord Jesus Christ. May you um, solidify this truth um, deep within our hearts. Help us to see the glories of the new covenant fulfilled by Christ. For his name we pray. Amen.